I have a friend who as a kid, his parents trained him to think desserts were bad and vegetables were good. So one day he was over at his aunt's house and she offered him some chocolate cake. And he replied, no, I don't like chocolate cake. Can I have some broccoli instead, please? This prompted his aunt to ask her sibling, what have you done to your child? <laughs> now my friend turned out all right in the long run, but at the time he couldn't recognize a good thing when it was right in front of him, so he rejected it. I don't think he regrets that one too much. There are always more chances to eat chocolate cake, but sometimes rejecting a good thing can have way more disastrous consequences. The tenants in the story that Jesus is telling here have no idea what the consequences of rejecting the sign are going to be. Let's review where we are in Matthew. Not long ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and made the implicit claim to kingship over Israel. He was greeted with shouts of Hosanna from a jubilant crowd, calling him the son of David in cries bursting with messianic hope and expectation. He walked into the temple and claimed authority there, upending the normal activity of money changing and sacrifices and calling out the corruption. And he did it right in front of the people who authorized everything that went on in the temple. He taught the crowds, healed the sick, and went out again. And after making such a stir, he's back again today, and the leaders are taking the opportunity to challenge his authority. They're trying to call Jesus to account. He has no right, they think, to do what he's doing. But the challenge they make gets turned around on them as Jesus launches into three parables, showing the unfaithfulness of these leaders. We're in the second parable now. It's a story about a vineyard that echoes descriptions of the nation of Israel from the Old Testament. The image of Israel as a vineyard would have been familiar to one of these experts of the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter five, for example, the house of Israel is described as a vineyard that was carefully tended by the Lord, but failed to produce a good crop. He did everything he could have done for it, but the vineyard yielded wild grapes instead of the good cultivated grapes it should have given. The story Jesus is telling is a little bit different from the one in Isaiah, but one thing that comes across the same is the goodness of the person who planted the vineyard. Planting a new vineyard is a huge capital investment. It's well beyond what most people could afford to do, particularly because after planting that vineyard, you would have to wait until the fourth year before you could expect to see any fruit from it. It's a substantial long-term investment, and the master of this vineyard has equipped it with everything that could be wanted. You've got a fence for protection, a tower for overseeing the workers. How do you respond when you're given an important responsibility? How do you feel towards the person who is trusting you with it? Does it seem like a good gift? I don't think I always look at it that way, but it is a precious thing to be trusted with something that matters to someone. In this story, a master has entrusted the vineyard to the tenants. But God has trusted much more than a vineyard to the leaders of his people. The job of these tenants is to work the vineyard and give the master his share of the fruit. But in this story, those entrusted with the care of the vineyard refuse to give the master what he is owed. Remember who the audience is here. Jesus is speaking with the chief priests and the Pharisees. So if the vineyard is the nation of Israel, then the ones entrusted with the vineyard would be these people Jesus is talking to, the religious leaders of the nation. What do they owe God? In the unfolding of the story, we get allegorical echoes of Israel's history. The master sending the servants to collect what is owed to him is like the Lord sending prophets to his people. The prophets God sent to Israel were by and large rejected and abused. But what were they asking for? What was the fruit God was looking for?
We could answer the question in different ways. God asked for repentance, for justice and mercy, for faithfulness. He asked for a people who would be definitively and unmistakably his people, but mostly he didn't get it. And who is at fault for that? On one level, it would be all the people, but it is particularly and especially the leaders of the people who had the responsibility for the faithfulness of the nation. They were entrusted with the work of cultivating the faith of the vineyard of Israel, but they did not deliver. And the pages of the New Testament opened with yet another prophet, the prophet John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Many people listened to John, but the Pharisees and the chief priests didn't listen to him. And now Jesus is here. What will they do with the Son of God? It's not history anymore. The story Jesus is telling has walked out of the past and into the present to confront his listeners with the very real status of their hearts. They will kill the Son of God. But how did we even get to this point? If you think about the parable, the master would have been totally justified in sending force after just the first group of servants was rejected. The fact that this master would send multiple groups of servants and then his own son reveals that he is not like most people. There is a patience and a graciousness here that goes beyond reasonable limits. God has been so patient with his people. He has sent servant after servant to call an unfaithful Israel to repentance. Surely by now he must be fed up with their rebellion. That's when he sends his son. This isn't only an act of patience. It's a continuation of the trust that was extended by giving them the vineyard in the first place. By sending his son, the master makes himself even more vulnerable to the treatment of the tenants. It's not just money he's entrusting to them now, it's family. There's a kind of stubbornness in this. The master is so determined to maintain his relationship with these tenants that he's willing to double down on patience and grace to give them another chance. Do you ever find yourself worried that God may have judged and rejected you? Do you think you've reached the limits of his patience yet? The graciousness of God defies the limits that make sense to us. But the tenants in the story don't respond to the graciousness of the master. They kill the son. And at that point, the story stops. And Jesus asks his listeners what will happen next. They tell him the owner of the vineyard will come and put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. The end of the story, as they predict it, is judgment and a transfer of power. And Jesus affirms that. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. But there's more to the story, something the listeners don't predict. And Jesus fills that in for us by giving us the quotation from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, and this is a prediction of his resurrection. The son who was killed in the parable will not stay dead. He will rise and take his rightful place of authority over the vineyard, and he will be the one to bring judgment against those who rejected him. In the parable, the son is helpless and vulnerable to the abuse of the tenants. But now Jesus is being described as a stone that other people are harmed by. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Those who rejected the authority of the Son will be confronted with the hard truth that whether they like it or not, Jesus is the risen Lord. 
The tenants who rebelled will be sent out of the vineyard, and the son will be exalted in his rightful place as the leader of God's people. But the son will not manage the vineyard alone. Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. There will be those who manage the vineyard under the authority of the son. And we already know who they will be because Jesus has already chosen them. Flip with me, if you would, back to Matthew chapter 4. This is right after the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He's just beginning his public ministry. Start reading with me from verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. These men responded to the son's call for repentance. And Jesus chose these and others to be leaders under him in the kingdom of God. It was Peter to whom Jesus would later say, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he said to the 12 apostles, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The authority that was taken away from the chief priests and the Pharisees was entrusted again, this time to these people who followed Jesus. Can you believe that God is still in the business of giving people responsibility? The apostles did their work 2,000 years ago, but the kingdom of God continues to be entrusted into the hands of new leaders in each generation. And the expectation for fruitfulness remains. God's people are precious to him. It's no small thing to be entrusted with the well-being of others. Spiritual authority is held by many people. Pastors, parents, bishops, and small group leaders have been entrusted with different amounts and different kinds of authority in the lives of God's people. And all of us have the responsibility of caring for the well-being of our own soul and being faithful witnesses and godly influences in the lives of the people around us. Can you believe God has trusted you with that? When Jesus called the apostles, he chose people who listened to his words and obeyed what he said. These are people who recognized the authority Jesus had over them. Instead of being broken against the cornerstone, they yielded the place of honor in their lives to him. If we're going to be faithful in carrying out the responsibilities God has given us, it has to begin with submitting ourselves to Jesus. He is the rightful authority. Any authority we could ever have is only derived from his entrusting it to us. Obedience to the master is what's expected from the tenants of the vineyard. But I think most of us know ourselves well enough to know we can be a bit dodgy on that front. So you need to have an eye always watching for the gracious, patient master calling for your repentance. And when he does, make sure to listen, because the consequences of ignoring him for too long will one day be dire. One time when I was a little kid, I was at the park in the winter with my dad and sisters. The playground was at the top of a hill, and I could see a wide, flat, open area of snow at the bottom of the hill. I didn't remember seeing that there when we came to the park in the summer, so I was intrigued by it and walked down the hill. 
I got to the bottom and started meandering out into the middle of this new area, heading for the center. But then I heard my dad calling my name loudly from the top of the hill. He sounded upset. So I turned around and walked back to him. He told me to follow the same path that I'd taken on my way out. It wasn't until I went back to that park in the summer that I realized I'd actually been walking on a frozen snow-covered pond. Who knows if I could have made it all the way across without falling through or not. Fortunately, the voice of my dad called me back to safety again. Repentance isn't ever just about us. If I fell through the ice, it wouldn't have just been me who suffered. It would have been a loss for others too. And repenting from our sins isn't only about our own well-being. It's also about the people around us, both those who love us and suffer to see us going astray, and also those who we might be harming or misleading with our actions. Be mindful of the way that what you do influences others, particularly if you have authority over them, but also just by the witness of your life. We can't divest ourselves of the responsibilities we've been given as people who live in constant relationship with other people. Our actions and choices will always have consequences and the Lord will be looking for his fruit. Does it seem too demanding for God to expect fruit from us? He is the one that gave us our lives in the first place, isn't he? Doesn't he have a right to expect good fruit? If you want to have a godly influence in the lives of others, you're going to have to cultivate godliness in yourself. It's quite often in the unplanned, spontaneous moments of interaction that we see the real character of a person. In another place, Jesus says that a good tree will bear good fruit and a bad tree will bear bad fruit. The beginning of the work is submission to the Lord in all things, and the first fruits of that will be in yourself, in repentance from sin and the growth of the fruit of the Spirit. And although that's the beginning, it's also a continuous and lifelong practice that will never be completed this side of heaven. Then, as you faithfully submit yourself to the Lord, watch for the opportunities that he will give you for good deeds. That's your chance to take what you've learned and make it real. Our good deeds are another kind of fruit. Even if nobody notices them, they're still visible to God. And he has a mysterious way of using things that happen behind the scenes. So we've got repentance, character, and good deeds. Let people see the light that is in you. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. And trust the Lord to make use of your life in ways you never would have expected him to. And for those who have spiritual authority in the lives of other people, you've been entrusted with a holy task and God will hold you accountable for it. But what a privilege. It's a precious thing to be entrusted with responsibility for the well-being of the people of God. And if you follow Jesus, you have a part to play in influencing and leading people in faithfulness to the Lord. Can you believe God would trust us with this?